Hi everyone, and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled, with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertia Morganum by P. D. Espensky. Today we are discussing Chapter 14, and we will be covering this chapter in two parts over separate podcasts. This is Part 2. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast, and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us. And welcome, Pete. So, welcome back, Pete. Hello. Second part of Chapter 14. So, just a very, very quick recap. We were up to the part of the book and we didn't get very far in, as it would appear. Uh, And I'll just read you the, the last thing we discussed. They're talking about the sailor, the hangman and the aesthetic men who seem to us similar and equal and consider them from the standpoint of their differences in function, which is see that in reality they are entirely different and there is nothing in common between them. And then he further goes on to say a little bit further down, and this is where we, we ended up, the souls of these men are actually quite different, not only in their quality, their magnitude, their age, and that's in inverted commas, as some people like now to put it, but as different in the very nature, origin and purpose of their existence as things belonging to entirely different categories can be. And from memory, we were discussing how that comment doesn't make a whole lot of sense because if he's putting people into their function and making them different in that way, we were saying, for example, the hangman could also be the baker. He might just be a part-time hangman. How does that make him different? I don't think he is different. I think he, I don't think he's different at all. He's only different when he's actually exercising a unique function. Yeah. Let me ask you something. That's exactly right. How, how different is he when he's asleep? When the aesthetic is asleep and the hangman is asleep, how different are they? Well, they're not. You can then talk about all kinds of stuff, some of which is positivism and some of which isn't. Um, and you can talk about what they might dream about. Uh, try to prove that one. This is now this is now in the realm of utter conjecture. As far as we can see, they are the same thing. Even even in the Newman, unless you are actually seeing their dreams, and because there there will be an, there'll be no emotion to deal with other than the emotion of the experience of the dreams that they're having. I'm going to tell you right now that a hangman is just as capable of having beautiful dreams as an aesthetic is of having horrific ones. So what does that tell us? Well, this is his point. He's saying that these people are, or these, the souls of these men are different because of their function. Nonsense. Because we can change function. We, we, we did go through this last, last time. They we can did. change yeah. their function. Uh, as you've just said, the hangman might be a baker. But more than that, I gave an example last week of the slave uh, ship master who then became the minister. He, again, he had a total exactly. transformation, became a Christian minister, and he's the guy that wrote um, Amazing Grace. It was, the, it was him. So, so let's, let's get rid of this uh, nonsense of Spensky. And by the way, this guy preceded Spensky, and he wouldn't be the only example in the world. And I think Spensky here is trying to sell a point that he hasn't thought through clearly. This is why I say mathematician he may have been, philosopher he sure as heck isn't. Because this is a miserable point that he's making here. I mean, it is so appallingly miserable that that it, I, I really don't want to spend too much time on it. It is crap. You know, the soul of the man 
can easily change. If it's the soul that's defining what the quality of, of the man that is so different, well, quite clearly the soul of the man is capable of change then, just as the man is capable of change. And, and we have numerous examples throughout history, and I gave just one. There are, there are millions. Well, exactly so. How about this? How about, how about, how about St. Paul? St. Paul wasn't a Christian at the start. He was the exact opposite. And then he had the road to Damascus experience and suddenly he is what he is. Everybody has the, the ability to transform. Lots of people have experiences. Like, you know, um, hey, here's, here's one for you. I'll throw this one in there. David Icke was a professional footballer than a sports journalist. He isn't that now, is he? Absolutely not. And I would say he doesn't even look back. Where he no. is now is is a totally different existence. And I, I don't think he'd even go, oh, I wish I was still back there. You know, yeah. he's, he's... No, he doesn't because he, doesn't, he says that. <laughs> but, you know, I, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what, what can I tell you? I, I think Ispensky here, um, this, is, this is crap. I do take the point that we don't see the quality of a man. I, two people walking down the street, one of them is going to do his job as an executioner, the other one is going to a church service. Um, there will be a difference in quality that positivism wouldn't recognise. However, he see, is implying in his work, well, he's not even implying it, he states it categorically and puts it in um, oh. italics in my book, that, that you know, that yes. they are... They are absolute, and the word absolute is quite clear. They are absolutely different. Well, no, they're not. They both have the capacity to change what they are in that moment. They're only what they are in the current moment. That's all they are. And that's the best we can say. The hangman, who is desperately, can't wait to hang this horrible person, and he's on his way to the prison to do the hanging job, could have a flash of inspiration that said, I don't believe in capital punishment anymore. I'm going home. You don't know. You know, and Uspensky doesn't know. And there are examples of things like this happening all the time, famously throughout history, but I would say not so famously amongst ordinary people throughout the world who have changes in their direction, in what they believe, in how they're going to live their lives people do so I, I i just i just think that uspensky here is flogging a dead horse and he and he keeps going on about it i can't agree with uspensky here myself so yeah no. but he does come, he does come good a little later in the chapter i will add so yeah, let's, yeah, let's I, move I, on I, you know so, so Kel, let's move on to that yes let's move on to that so take the lead okay so i'll run through where he's he's he comes to a great example but i'll, I'll run through the scaffold so he he's next says um, and we shall begin to understand this. The general concept, man, will take on a different meaning. And the relation holds to the observation of all phenomena. The master gallows across, these are all things belonging to such different categories, the atoms of such different objects, known only by their functions, that there cannot be a question of any similarity at all. And I think I mentioned this last time. What When he says the atoms of such different objects, I kind of got from that that he was implying that these um, functions are actually the atoms as opposed to their chemical atoms. Then he should say so. Again, don't use language. It's going to get us. And you know why we only did a page and a half of the chapter last time? Because of his language. 
Yeah. yeah. Again, you know, if he if he doesn't mean atoms, don't say it. Because even in his day, an atom was a very specific thing. You know, we do know what they were. By the time he was writing this, Rutherford was going about splitting it. So, you know, mm. we do know we do we an atom would have a common meaning for people. Don't use it if that's not what you mean. The atoms are not different. If I if, if I chop a tree down and part of it is used to make a gallows, part of it to make a mast, and another part of it to make a crucifix, I'm here to tell you, and I'm here to tell Uspensky that the atoms are not fundamentally different. There may be a quality in the part of it that goes to make up a gallows that when it's performing that function is numinously different, but the atoms are the damn same. As and I'm not a positivist, by the way, but I'm here in support of positivism in that respect. In that respect, exactly so. And I think that's why I thought maybe he was looking at, at that word atoms and being a little you know, too clever. You may well be right, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an awful way of writing them. It's a, it's a poor way of expressing an idea. If he does mean that, he should have put that in um, some sort of quote, like a rabbit's ears. Or yeah, quotes, so that, yeah. You know. Like he has done with age, <laughs> a paragraph earlier. Correct. Yeah, correct. <laughs> yes, moving along. He goes on to say, Our misfortune consists in the fact that we regard the chemical constitution of a thing as its most real attribute, whilst, as a matter of fact, its true attributes must be sought for in its functions. And I think that is really what he's trying to say he's trying to say mm -hmm. that that the, the positivist will look at something only in its chemical makeup and say that's the same as that but if you yeah. take it from a different lens and say something with the same function it might have a different chemical composition i'm gonna yeah and i agree and i agree and and, and i think we both agree with this don't, yeah, do I, do. Not? yeah. I do. Okay. And we discussed this at length last week. We already went through all of this about function mm -hmm. and, and, and the positive attributes. I really don't want to go through it again. Otherwise, this chapter will be done in about eight oh, episodes. Too long. Too long. We're, 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 we're just arguing the same case. Let's, let me just summarize. This is our position. We understand that the atoms of um, a physical object, the stones in a, in a wall of a church and a prison, the, 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 the wood that makes up a gallows, a mast, and uh, a crucifix, we understand that positively the atomic structure is the same. You know, um, if one tree was used to make gallows, mast, and crucifix, the, the atomic, positive atomic um, investigation of them would say that it's the same material. We understand that beyond the material, positive um, science uh, of looking at these objects, there is a function that they are now put to that gives them an, something that we can't measure scientifically at the moment, a different quality. And that, that invokes, sometimes in the sensitive people amongst us, it will invoke an emotion. You'll feel a different emotion looking upon a crucifix than you would from a ship's mast, than you would from a gallows, even though they're made of the same material. This is where we are. It's the function now that has the invisible quality behind the physical quality. Is that where we are? Would you agree? Well said, well said. I think you've just summarised the whole point brilliantly, and that's exactly what we're up to. Yeah, I think I think that's where we are. Okay, right, let's move yeah. on. Okay, so he moves on, and now I know that this, this, this terminology that he uses is going to provoke an emotion in you, 
um, when he talks about the chains of causation. But no, it's okay. You know, we I I I I had my rant about that last week. So that's I don't right. Worry yes. About it now. So I just want to just gloss over that term and get to his point, which I think is yeah. quite interesting. I think that would be good. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be good. Could we broaden and deepen our vision of the chains of causation, the links of which are forged by our action and our conduct? Could we learn to see them not only in their narrow relation to the life of man, to our personal life, but in their broad cosmical meaning? Should we succeed in finding and establishing a connection between the simple phenomena of life and the life of the cosmos? Then without doubt, in these simplest phenomena would be unveiled for us an infinity of the new and the unexpected. So why I thought that was interesting is I think if he's talking about our actions and our conduct, the things that we do impact the outcomes of everything that's existing all at the same time. Yep, so it's called the butterfly effect. The, mo- the modern terminology is the butterfly effect. Yes, yes. And that actually negates what he said previously about the fact that the souls of the men are all the same because if they're all the same, (laughs) then how does their actions and their, well, in his words, action and conduct not change the outcome of of what is, you know, the phenomena that that they experience? Well, it does. Um, So there you go. There you go. (laughs) It does. So it, 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 it does. So, there's, so there's my answer to that one. Yeah, and exactly with your example, the soul of the hangman going to hang somebody and he gets a revelation that, oh, no, it's not for me to judge somebody and I don't want to hang that person anymore because I don't believe in capital yep. punishment. He now And, and then, then suddenly he might become uh, a preacher. He's now got yep. the soul of a preacher, uh, yep. as as John John Newton, I think it was, that, to yeah, him. that was the guy. Yeah, the, he used to be a slave master, made a fortune from it, and you know, and then had this epiphany uh, where he realised that it was the most awful thing that he'd done. He turned to Christianity, became a minister, and wrote Amazing Grace. And the Amazing Grace was his atonement um, for the life that he had led, and the gratitude for being given the light to change that life. That that was his purpose in writing it and and writing it in the hope that that him would also stir up an emotional change in other people who were in a similar position to him which in many cases it has it's it's been an effective tool so yeah. i would i would say there's something numinous about what was transmitted to him i don't think that song was something that he labored over i think he, that was given to him but that's yeah, a different I story would agree. yeah because it does have well, it, it, because, you know, it has had impact on so many people. It was written it really in the 1700s has. and it's yep. still around. So it, <laughs> it, it evidently has, uh, has something. It's got a staying power that Lady Gaga won't have. No, I don't think in 300 years Lady Gaga's songs, much as she might be enjoyed now, will still have that impact. <laughs> anyway, so, but but he does talk about the fact that, you know, the, the things that look like the simplest things, the simplest phenomena, uh, uh, could be something infinitely more complex. Yep. Outside of that, something when you and and I, I guess he's bringing that. I'm, well, I'm thinking he's bringing that into the fact that we're looking at the function as the clue. So yeah. if that's the if that's the category, if that's the grouping, then uh, 
the impact that we have, I guess, changes that function or taps us into that function of some sort. But, Pete, I'm going to leave it to you mm-hmm. to, to talk about this some more. There's nothing really more to say. I mean, honestly, we do need to move on because we can keep going on about um, the differences in this invisible thing that that's defined by the function of an object or a person rather than the physical aspect of the, the object or the person. We, we can keep talking about that all day, but it does remain the same. We, mm-hmm. we know okay, that great. there is something, there is something that science, our modern science, our technical science cannot yet measure or see or even suspect. You know, positives, positivists will say, because we don't see it, it doesn't exist. They refuse to even suspect that there is this numinous quality behind all objects and all living things and the whole universe together. So they don't even try to create instruments to measure it or to discover it because they refute refute it and they refuse to ex- accept it at all. Um, only the people who are working on the cutting edge of cosmology and mathematics are now being led by their research into areas that say, hang on, how the hell do we explain this? Nothing else in science does that. And because this is mathematics and cosmology is now mathematics, it's not observational, it's mathematical. So basically, we're talking about the same people. People use the word quantum now as though they know what it, what it means, and they don't. It's just become a buzz buzzword, hasn't it, in, in our, our cultural um, society. You know, yeah. And if I talk about quant, if I talk about quantum mechanics, if I talk about quantum mathematics, quantum physics, people wouldn't know the difference between those three, and people wouldn't understand that cosmology is different. And although it's it's using um, quantum theory to actually try to define the way that the universe is constructed and the way that it works and operates. However, nevertheless, those are the people. The people there that find themselves, when they're research, and you, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, research into mathematics, but there is, <laughs> and and it's it's like they're coming up with their jumble of indecipherable symbols covering loads of blackboards, and then they're looking at that the way that we would look at a photograph, and they're saying, "Hang on, look at what I'm seeing in this photograph here. I couldn't see that when I when I was looking through the." the viewfinder of the camera, but my God, look what I've taken. They're coming up with these astonishing conclusions that their, their, their mathematical research is taking them to that, that increasingly leads them to have, have to actually posit the idea of an unquantifiable at the moment and immeasurable something that's out there beyond positivism. They're already, they're, they're the only ones on that cutting edge at the moment, and they're resisting having to say it as much as they can. And, and that, to me, is unusual because, like, you don't have to be a, a scientist to sense there's something more, as we've already discussed. There's something more than just the physical. I, I mean, I've, I've said this before. I, if I go into an old house, it feels different to a new house. It just feels different. And they'll tell you, and they'll tell you that's just your your silly emotions, they're virtually, in, in an earlier time, they'd have said, oh, don't be just such a silly woman. It's just a house. <laughs> that's what positive, that's what positive, <laughs> well, a simple woman, yes. Uh, <laughs> and the crafty savage. But <clears throat> you're not even a crafty savage. You're a simple woman or a, or a, chi- a small <laughs> child. Now, 
here's the, here's an, in, the, the point of that, though, is that positivism has been created to stifle any discussion even of the numinous. It is, in, I mean, you, if, you, if you want to, to go down that road, you should ask yourself why the Royal Society was founded and what, uh, what were the foundations of the Royal Society from which, is, from which we get modern science and the separation of disciplines. So you can't, you can't be a learned person anymore. You have to be a specialist. And the specializations do not come together for a good reason. So this separate separation has been engineered. It's not accidental. I mean, if people want to discuss that, that's great. They should they should call in. They should send us a message, and we'll we'll discuss it. But that that has happened for a reason, and it's happened on purpose. And you can pretty much say that it was formalized by the foundation of the Royal Society in the seventeenth century, of which I think Newton was the first um, master of the Royal Society. But um, coming back to Spensky now, so we, we, we now have this idea, positivism is not going to get us very far. It's not going to get us much further than we are now. It, it, it really won't. Yeah. They'll go around in circles because they're, they're not going to see anything else. But this idea of the connection of, of all things within a common universe is very, very interesting now. We have to see what's going on behind those scenes. So this is where I think I think he's going. He's, I'll give you the, the, the text. For example, in this way, we may come to know something entirely new about those simple physical phenomena which are accustomed to regard as natural and obvious about which we think we know something, and I think that's positivism. Then mm -hmm. unexpectedly, we may find that we know nothing, that everything here to known about them is only an incorrect deduction from incorrect premises. He then says, there may further be revealed to us something infinitely great and immeasurably important in such phenomena as the expansion and contraction of solids, electrical phenomena, heat, light, sound, the movements of the planet, the coming of the day and night, the change of seasons, the thunderstorm, heat, lightning, etc., etc. Generally speaking, we may find explained in the most unexpected manner the properties of phenomena which we used to accept as given things as not containing anything within themselves that we could not see and that we could not see and understand. And? and I think what he's saying is that we are so used to accepting the positivistic point of view that these things have a uh, an explanation about them from a material um, energy light phenomenon point of view that if if we put that aside and did not um, we started to question that those those things in themselves that we may find looking to their function that they are actually entirely different to what we knew that we don't know anything about them I think that's what he's saying if we looked at those those things out of context of the physical mm -hmm. in the context of the noumenal and their function in the noumenal then we may find that they are something entirely different to what we actually thought or understood that, them to be. He doesn't yeah. actually tell us what that is. But no, I know, and, and, you know, he can't really, can he? Well, no, but he's, he's posing the question. Yeah, and I think it's a, I think it's a good question. Why, why do solids um, expand and contract? Well, the positivists look at that and they'll say it in response to changes in temperature, for example. 
Um, so, you know, th they go so far. But then what effect does that have on anything else? So let's, for example, say we take um, ice, we take water in a pipe, standing water in a, in a copper pipe you know, runs to our houses. What happens when we get a sub-zero temperature? It expands. Yeah, which, which is the opposite, by the way, of what you would imagine, because we're usually told that things expand when they get hotter. But we won't go into that because there is a positive explanation for that. Um, but it does expand. So what happens? It bursts the pipe. And then when warmer temperature comes and the ice turns to water, you have got an insurance claim. Yeah, but interesting, it expands, it expands when it's super cold, but it also expands when it's super hot because it turns into gas. Yeah, I know. So you couldn't say that the one thing causes the expansion because it's actually what's temperature, but you couldn't. I think Uspensky's point here when he talks about causal links is forget the causal links. We shouldn't even try to describe that. It's what is it about its connection with the rest of the universe that is affected or that it affects? Why? Um, you know, the, what is it that the universe is doing? What's happening within the universe when, when water is superheated and becomes a gas? Or what is it when it's supercooled and it becomes a solid and so on? I mean, water is, is phenomenal for us because we can actually investigate it in those three states easily. It, 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 it can find those three states, solid, liquid and gas, within a very narrow range of temperature change. If you want to know what I mean by that is, um, when will you ever see rock expressed as a gas? When will the atoms that make up a rock be superheated enough to become vapour? <laughs> you need a nuclear explosion to do it. We don't see it in nature. We don't see nature, you know, creating, um, turning rocks into gas. Maybe supervolcano eruptions would do that. I, I would have to investigate that. But, you know, they don't reach the temperatures that we get from um, a fusion bomb, a hydrogen bomb. Which is a, a good segue into the next thing that he's talking about. That yeah, keep going. About. So in amidst this world of causation, he's saying that, you know, it's our senses and brain that, cannot understand them entirely but he said if we can grasp this the simplest thing would seem with wonderment so he he's still talking about the newness of things he says our senses are too primitive our concepts too crude for that fine differentiation of phenomena which must unfold itself to us in a higher space well yeah that's that's not something new he's he said this all along um, right, yeah, fair dues, fair dues, but there are people, even in his time, that we could point to that do uh, actually have the experience and they do do, do this. Well, what Higher realms, yeah, he, he could just as well say there are some people that do get behind the, the, the positiveness and that, that do have a way of explaining the newness. Let me give you an example, like I often do. St. John of the Cross. Have you ever heard of the phrase, um, the dark night of the soul? Okay, the dark night of the soul is this, this moment where you wake up or you don't even sleep or you're, you're tossing and turning at night with, with doubt. It's about doubt, the dark night of the soul that has to be overcome. Now, I'm not going to talk about how you overcome the dark night of the soul. That's, a, that's for another time and a different thing. But here is the point. The point is that you've had this new experience that generates emotion and there are ways of expressing it. 
Ispensky seems to think that everybody would fall fall into the gutter like a jelly on being faced with something new. People people have had this experience, and he says things like, "We can't, we can't see." What is it that he that he says? You know. Um, it must be of wonderment, and this wonderment must grow greater and greater according to our better acquaintance with it, and the better we know a certain thing or a certain relation of things, the nearer or more familiar they are to us, the greater will be our wonder at the new and the unexpected therein revealed. Well, I've got to say, the, the point I'm making here is, thank you, Mr. Uspensky, but there have been people doing this down through the ages. The writings of Thomas Aquinas, for example, Sir... Uh, St. Augustine's City of God, the works of loads of other philosophers and poets down the ages that have had all of this experience of the numinous. They haven't been phased by it. They have sought to find experience from it that they can put into terms that we can understand, therefore making us more susceptible to the numinous than we previously were. And I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that there's there's a reason why Thomas Aquinas is more famous than P.D. Uspensky. And there's a, fam there's a reason why St. John of the Cross is as well, um, and, and others. But, you know, I this is what Monty Python would say. He's just stating the bleeding obvious. To me, these are statements <laughs> of the bleeding obvious. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, we, all, we all understand that you, you can't scientifically measure emotions, although you can sort of now. <laughs> Well, you'll measure changes in uh, temperature and blood pressure and and all kinds of things. What about those mood rings? You know, I've got one. I'm wearing <laughs> one. Right, I'm wearing one. I'm wearing one oh, right now. Look at now. you. <laughs> so, look, I I'm with you. He he's, he is explaining things over and over again that are pretty obvious. But I think where his point is going is that he's saying, in a nutshell, in the next sentence, desiring to understand the noumenal world. We must search for the hidden meaning in everything. And I think when you're talking about other people who have experienced stuff, that, that's sort of like the epiphanies they've had, that those things have changed them, things that they, the experiences they've had that are out of this world, shall we say, yeah, have but they changed were new to them, them from then on. They were yeah, new to them. Did. But from that, that point onwards, they have understood something that they previously didn't understand. Yeah, that's right. and it's and possibly something they can't even explain. Language wouldn't wouldn't accommodate it. So let's move on. So now we get a quote from the occult world, and this yep. is his quote. We should make it clear now that this is the letter that you're quoting from the Hindu mystic to the author A. P. Sinnott, who wrote the book The Occult World. Thank you for that. Yes, so we've cleared that up. So I'll just continue and read. We see a vast difference, he writes, between the two qualities of two equal amounts of energy expended by two men, one of whom, let us suppose, is on his way to his daily quiet work and another on his way to denounce a fellow creature at the police station, while the men of science see none. And we, not they, see a specific difference between the energy in the motion of the wind and that of a revolving wheel. Aspensky says we shall easily see that the man of science does not recognise a difference in the quality of the energy spent of the two men going to about their daily work, which I think is where he's trying to pull this. It's again. Okay. I think you can summarise it right here, that things have different qualities dependent upon their function, things that can't be measured by positive science, and so somewhere behind the scenes, that's the difference that some of us 
can learn to experience and then have a different view of the objects themselves and the, of the greater universe with which they are connected. Summarised. Done. Move on. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what it is. We're, we're going to be saying the, talking the same thing again about how it's the function of the object that's different and there's something behind it, a quality, a numinous quality that we, you know, don't necessarily see or understand, but we can come to learn. And once we do, we can't unlearn it. We'll never see things the same way once we've seen them this new way. That's what yeah, he's saying. Absolutely. He is saying the same thing over and over again, varying degrees. It's... Uh, it's like the um, death of a thousand cuts. So, <laughs> yeah. okay. So, all right. So he goes on to say, but perhaps the difference is much deeper and consists of the difference between modes of energy, but the difference between men, one of whom is able to develop energy of one sort and another of a different sort. Now we have a form of energy which senses this difference perfectly and goes on to say, he is speaking of art the musician, the painter, the sculptor, well understand that it is possible to walk differently and even impossible not to walk differently. A workman and a spy cannot walk like one another. Well, I'm not 100% sure about that. but I... Neither am I. In fact, the whole point of the spy is to blend in. That spies, I don't know what Ispensky thinks a spy is, but he doesn't wear a cloak and a hat like in the cartoons and go creeping around. The whole They spend years brainwashing people who are trained to be spies to fit in so yes yes a spy can walk like a workman so sorry sorry mr Dispensky, but but you're, you're completely wrong there a rubbish analogy again not the first time and i know that it won't be the last because i know what's coming so you know it's a dreadful analogy and it doesn't work and i don't agree with a word of it because they can superficially walk the same you wouldn't know so you unless you were a particularly numinous empath you wouldn't know that one wasn't was a workman and the other was a spy you just wouldn't know you'd have to have some kind of telepathic um extrasensory perception of what's going on with those those people and that's not what he's saying here well what he's done is he's kind of gilded the lily really because what his point was that the musician, the painter, the sculptor, they understand a difference that most of us probably don't pick up because we're just looking at something physically. And when they do something, um, like they paint something, well, I'm a, I'm a rubbish painter. So if I paint something, I'm going to paint exactly what I think I see. But a true artist will capture the essence of, say, a flower that's right. or whatever. And that's, that, and, and that's the whole point of art, and that's why people don't understand abstract art, because they're living in a positive world. Hmm. And, and this is what he's saying. He's... Yeah, and I, I agree. It's, it, it's down to the artist to try to explain to us this, these hidden qualities, yes? He's saying, and, and he's quite right. When we're looking at the differences in people, it's the actor more than anybody that, and I like how he puts, well, he should do it better than anybody else. He should know about it more. But the poet and the artist see it. And what they're trying to do is to express what they are feeling emotionally when they look at something. Exactly That's right. That's the and whole that point. Is... That they're getting that. Okay. So, you know, and I, I don't think we're going to disagree with Uspensky with on that, are we? I, I, I think no, not at this, all. Is, this is the purpose I... of art. For me, and this is and this is what stimulates people to become artists. Yeah, but not just art, uh, music, poetry, anything of the art world. Yeah, I count that as art. I mean, writing is art. 
expressive writing. Exactly. Yeah. Those so, yeah. those things that that pull that that hidden something that the rest of us go. Mm. I really get that, but I can't put that, it in words. Mm. Couldn't tell you yeah. what it is or, about. Or, that or, that or put it in anything. You know, I can't put it in any. any no. fine, I can't find any way of expressing it. Exactly right. So he does. He, he goes further to say that you know the poet understands the mastership. The gallows are made of different wood. He understands the difference between the stone and the church wall. So he's in essence saying yeah. that um, the positivist just kind of gives you the what you see is what you get, but the artist brings out that numinal quality and that positivism. I mean, by the way, is so insidious that most people faced with art, most people faced with art, still don't get it anyway. Um, painting is a great example. Um, there are loads of people that would look at, well, Picasso's Cubism, Jackson Pollock particularly, and uh, say, rubbish. And they say, Constable, now that's art, because they think that Constable is um, a representative artist. And, you know, they look at the Hay Wayne and they, they say, yeah, look, beautiful English countryside. And, that, and they don't understand that actually Constable was a rebel and people were shocked at the Hay Wayne. I'm not going to go into the reasons why at the moment. It was, it's to do with composition and scale. Um, but they were shocked. It, it was a totally different way of perceiving the world through art. I mean, it was groundbreakingly revolutionary groundbreakingly revolutionary and yet he is now the the poster boy for representative art oh we'll all have a, a, a print and a copy of constable's haywayne on the wall ha <laughs> ha but that picasso no uh they don't get it they just don't get it at all yeah because it's not about technique or whatever it's not about representation yeah so so that he he so he's brought this point in, which I think is really the purpose of his whole chapter. He's, he's started to started the chapter giving us, you know, we can sense something. Then he's moved on to saying that positivists don't sense it, but the artist does. And and we know that. We, we look at a painting um, and, it, and it evokes emotion um, one way or another. But I also think, you know, you, you're right with, you know, Picasso being totally different and yet... Uh, very popular um, with some people it, it it isn't about trying to explain what the artist is doing it's actually feeling what the artist is doing it's a feeling in my opinion mm -hmm. it is um you know I, I just made the point that there's still a lot of people who are so wedded to positivism this this new religion of science and it is a cult it is a religion think don't don't dream that it's not because it is um, it has now forced its opinion, just like in the medieval world, Christianity had forced... You, you couldn't live without thinking that, that, that the Christian tenets were absolutely um, inviolable truths. You couldn't. It, it, it wouldn't even cross your mind. Positivism, uh, because of the cult of science, does exactly the same thing today, which is why you, get, you do get a lot of people that don't get art, for that, however popular Picasso is, and he is very popular in the art world, but um, a lot of the time people will go and see um, a Picasso because they've heard he's famous. This is the cult of celebrity. And then they'll walk away and have no, having had no experience at all other than the fact that they were in the presence of a famous painting. Uh, that, that happens a lot. But those same people feel that degree of comfort with something that's absolutely representational they feel com that's comfortable 
because they they can they think they can understand what's going on there. It happens all the time. And yet, in in schools and you know outside of school, they teach art, which is an interesting concept. Because if art, how can you teach somebody to sense the essence of something? You can't. That isn't... You can't teach that. You can only teach technique. The the rest of it, you can't teach. The rest of it, and and. Like I know at school, if you were taking art, you would be marked on your technique. Yeah, which of course you would. isn't the point of art. Yeah, because the art that's taught in school is is actual science. It's actually science. The art that's Correct. taught in that's, school that's, is science. That's the thing, and that's what you're saying is you know that mm. this positivism, this scientific thing, it it infiltrates mm. everything. It is a it is um it is a worldwide cult. And it has taken over the world. It has replaced re medieval religion. The importance of medieval religion was replaced by science. Again, like I said, for a reason, and it's been engineered. We won't go into that here because it's out of the scope of what Ospensky's writing about. But that is a fact. So when Ospensky talks about art, yeah, art has been actually distanced from human beings so that we don't get it. So that we don't get it. Yeah. And yeah. this, and it's because they're frightened of us being awakened by what art can do for us. People have got, yeah. have also have a strange idea. They think that now is how it's always been, and it wasn't. So this idea of art stimulating something elevated in people that that actually makes them beyond human. It's it's a stage of evolution. Be in no doubt, and we and Spensky will touch on this and the fact that he's a, he is a, a devotee of theosophy at this point um, actually aligns with that. But the fact is that people think that today is how it always was. They think, you know, oh, paintings, of all, you know, because I can go to an art gallery and look at paintings, that that's how it always was. Get the hell out of here. This is really a 20th century phenomenon. First of all, the leisure time. In the medieval, in the medieval world, you would never see a bloody painting. You know, you, you have no chance of seeing a painting because they weren't painted for you. There weren't public art galleries. They went to the houses and the halls of the very, very wealthy elite few. So you wouldn't see it. You wouldn't be stimulated. You wouldn't be having this, this um, existential um, experience, this beyond existential experience of gazing at a painting and, and getting that numinous feel, that meditative experience of looking at a painting, you wouldn't be getting it because you wouldn't see it. You you couldn't, for example, walk into um, the Uffizi Palace uh, of Cosimo de' Medici and say, eh, Cos, nice of you to let us in. I, oh, that's a lovely painting. When did you buy that? You, you know, dream on. That did not happen. It didn't happen anywhere in the medieval world, so the vast majority of people weren't exposed to it. It was the preserve of the rich for a reason, and they kept it that way. It's a very modern phenomenon that people, after the cult of science has desensitized them to art and the stimulation that they might get from art, now we're, they're allowed to see it so that they can point derisively at it and say, what the bloody hell's that? What a load of crap. It's just a white screen. Somebody's just painted a canvas white and called it art and it's just sold for 20 million quid. Ooh, the world's gone mad. Well, make what you want of that. But art has only been made available to the people once the people were so desensitised to the effects of art that it wouldn't have a stimulating effect on them. And then the educated wealthy 
can look down upon the idiotic masses who don't understand art because they can tap their noses and say, yeah, but we know what that means. We know the symbolism. The symbolism speaks to us and symbols do speak. That is the language of the numinous numbers and symbols. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> but it's not just art, is it? It's not just paintings. It's also no, no, it's music. Not. It's also poetry. Poetry. Nobody understands poetry anymore. They we used to. We don't read poetry. Yeah, used to. We hear music, but we don't hear a lot of classical. It's Mass populations didn't hear that either, remember. They weren't. You, know, we, you watch the movie Amadeus, yeah. Um, poetry is a very specific thing as well. Um, people did used to hear it. They, they used to hear it, and they used to hear it in masses because, um, for example, let's, do, let's take one society, but it's only one, Celtic society, where Druids, to be a Druid, Druidic bard, you had to learn and memorise a minimum of 20,000 lines of poetry. This is not just for the sake of it. It's hypnotic, it's instructional, it, and, it, and it speaks to the numinous of the listener. You'd hear it again and again and again. We go back um, beyond that and we look at the, in ancient Greece, and we have the evidence of Homer, but also of others. But Homer is the one. You imagine somebody coming around and reciting the Iliad around, you know, in the town at night, and everybody's mesmerized by that story. Same in Rome. Rome had the same. Horace would come around and, and you know, in fact, he was um, a friend of Augustus Caesar, so he would be invited to recite his poetry. Um, Virgil telling the Aeneid. These had the soul of the people. This is where the soul of the people was contained in those lines, in that poetry. That doesn't happen anymore. That stopped. And it's a shame because poetry is, is, is exceptionally moving. I've got some poems that I read over again because every time they uh, they bring to life something that, that isn't the same as um, reading a book. It's something to do with the way they're written. When Uspensky talks about this, he's, there's a great little um, line, and you'd have to scroll way down beyond where you are to see it, but he says... Only the fine apparatus, which is called the soul of an artist, can understand and feel the reflection of the noumenon in the phenomenon. In other words, if you have an artistic gift, you will see the numinous behind the phenomenal. But it's developing this gift of an artist. Because he says the artist must be a clairvoyant. Yeah, I was going to say, but to, to develop that gift, you need, you need leisure time. What's the one thing um, that the world has done to humanity? Slavery. You've had to work all day and all night. You do not get the opportunity to do that. You do not get the opportunity to, do, to develop this gift, most, mostly. And you certainly didn't until the late 20th century. And now, that's gone again. We live in a totally different society than the one that was around when I was born. It's nowhere near the same. We're going back to feudalism right now, right now. It's, it's, it's watchable. Debt slavery, long hours and fear. Nobody, nobody's sitting at home thinking, you know what, I'm going to develop my artistic skill and discover the numinous behind the phenomenal. Not at all. And you're right about debt. Debt is the new slave it's the new, master. It's the new feudal slave master. Yeah. And it is feudal. You have to serve it. You have to work on the master's land. In other words, once you've got a mortgage, 
the first few days of the month that you work, you're working for your slave master that holds your debt. The next few days, you're working for the slave master that holds the, your tax debt. Very, and then one day, one or two days a month, you're allowed to work on your own patch of land to grow your own crops. Tell me then where you're developing the artistic skill to investigate the noumenal behind the phenomenon. You're not. And it's been designed that way. And with the amount of credit card debt we've got, you're probably spending your time that you've got working you know, for yourself, worrying about how you're going to make enough money to pay off your debt. That's the one. You, that's, well, that's the, exact, that's the exact thing. The two days that you work on your own scrap of land is that's what you're doing. You're now paying off the credit card debt. You're using those crops to feed the starvation that would come if you couldn't pay your credit card debt. It's, it's exactly what it is. This idea, money is energy, uh, and, you know, and slavery is energy. And we've had, it doesn't matter what the engine of slavery is, it's the same energy. Yeah. If anybody wants to know more about that, they can look up something called uh, Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars. Look it up. Um, actually, there's on YouTube, somebody reads it, and, and it's, an, it's a remarkable um, production that they've done of it. Read it. You're, it'll explain in fine detail the energy relationships uh, the, the, the money has been created from. And the um, analogies are electronics. So, for example, we, we can find out what the capacitor is, what the inductor is, and so on it, with money and how it's used by people who understand it to generate slavery in those that don't. It's exactly the same thing. And that's what's done. That's what's been done with art. And Uspensky is right to point this out, that this is the, the artist's soul. But you have to understand that very few people are allowed to develop that clairvoyant gift that he mentions to see the noumenal behind the phenomenal. People aren't given yeah. the time to do it. He's dead right. I, I totally agree with him. But, you know, the reason that people don't see it is because they don't find the time to develop it. No, and that, that there's a, a method in that, isn't there? So he says the artist must be clairvoyant. He must see that which others do not see. He must be yeah, a magician, yeah. must possess the power to make others see that which they do not themselves see, but which well, he they, does see. Well, the, the artist does try to do that, and in earlier times did do that, but now finds it very, very difficult because science has taken over, it's the new cult, and it has programmed people from birth and possibly from before birth to not see. Which is why I use the example of the people that look at abstract art and go, what a load of rubbish, a chimpanzee could do that. Constable, now there's a painting. And that's why that reaction is so common. And for every person that you know, that looks at art and appreciates it and knows how to how to, how to try to find that noumenal quality behind the art that they're looking at, I will show you a hundred thousand. For every one that you can show, I will show you a hundred thousand that don't. Well, you could just back that up very easily. Every city has an art gallery. You'd say and nobody goes in. Have some, some art up, up on the walls of the cafe even. Yeah. And yeah. like I go to the art gallery a lot. And it is very easy to social distance at the art gallery. I know, because there's nobody there. <laughs> That's right. So, Spensky, we will get to the end of this chapter. Uh, uh, he says, art sees more and farther than we do. And as was said before, usually uh, we usually see nothing. 
We merely feel our way. Therefore, we do not notice the differences between things which cannot be expressed in terms of chemistry and physics. But art is the beginning of vision. It sees vastly more than the most perfect apparatus we can discover. And it senses the infinite invisible facets of that crystal, one facet of which we call man. Yeah. I think that's summing up what you said, that we're, we're trained to look the other way and not yeah, understand. Yeah, we are. And that's, and that's a shame, you know, because we, we, all of us have the ability to develop this new, this percept, this extra perception. And in fact, in, in cultures in your country, people are born with it. They, you know, they don't have to like go through some angst ridden process of meditation classes to learn how to find it. They're born with it. It's, in fact, they look at us and think, oh, how come you don't see this? They always have thought that. They always do. And, that, and that's the shame. We're not born. This isn't an inherent quality of man, that we're born blind. We, we have actually succumbed to a framework that blinds us from birth. Or, or, or as I would say, from pre-birth. Because in the womb, you are subject to every emotion of the mother carrying you. So, And this is what Aspensky, I think, is saying. Mm. That... that it's there, but we've got to stop looking at what we're taught to look at. We're taught to yeah. look at things in terms of their physical, chemical, scientific mm -hmm. explanation. And the, and the way in is art. Absolutely. And, and, and it always has been, which is why those hunter-gatherers up in the Northern Territory of Australia when they are living the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, which is Northern Australia, Northern Territory is one of the, the, the few places left in Australia where there are people living the old tribal way, perhaps somewhere in Western Australia as well. And they, they spend, like we've said before, a couple of hours a day hunting and gathering. The idea that it's life is brutal, harsh and short and difficult is a lie. A lie that we've been sold so that we buy into the feudal system of slavery. But they don't buy into it. And what do you think they do with the rest of the day? You know, they're spending two hours staying alive by yeah. hunting and gathering. What do you imagine they do with the rest of the day? Art, dance, ritual. Storytelling. Pa painting, storytelling, shagging. Oh, for, for any American <laughs> listeners, that making love. Um, they... <laughs> They um, they do this. This is how they spend their days. It doesn't sound so terrible to me, you know. Well, it, it certainly doesn't sound um, like there's a lot of angst about paying off your debts and being, yeah. No, they're not. But coming back to Aspensky, they are immersed in art. They are immersed in art because that's the way of seeing the reality of the universe around them. And they do understand that when they have to come into contact with Western culture, that they have to actually virtually live in blinkers. They have to actually put a, ma a hood over their heads and look through narrow little slits so that they can actually have an experience that the Western world would understand. That's basically what they do. They have to lower themselves to our level. Well, and you look at, look at the way... You know, look at history. Uh, it, it's appalling. I know it's a shock. It's a shocker. And why? Why do you think that was? Because if Western people came into contact with these people and saw that life, there would be revolution. People would say, "I'm not doing this feudal stuff anymore. I'm not being a debt slave anymore." What do you think the mutiny on the bounty was all about? 
It certainly wasn't the harsh treatment of the sailors by Captain Bly. He then went on to do what is the longest feat of navigation in an open boat known to man. He was a fantastic sailor. Uh, when he got home, he was exonerated. He wasn't blamed. And he was given command of the pride of the British naval fleet, the, the warship pride of the fleet. This guy was a great sailor. The, the story that's come down was he was harsh on his men and Fletcher Christian led a mutiny and that did that did away with him. Actually, no. They got to Tahiti. The sailors went ashore. They saw, hang on, why am I going to go back on that cramped ship and live like that when I can lie under the palm trees with these, go fishing all day and, and having sex? What? Do you really? Is, is there really any any contest there? You, you know how brutal it was to be on a naval ship in, in those days. Yeah. And then you come to the... And yeah, you come, it, it, you it would have been a no-brainer, wouldn't it? Yeah. Completely. Yeah. And so Job they done, decided... The mutiny was all about, not because we hate you, Captain Bly, it was about, hang on, I'm not going back to, I'm not going back to that life in England. I can stay here and live like this. Boom, job done. If you look deep enough into the history, you'll find that story told. But that's not the story that most people are led to believe, is it? But it makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? And this is why the Aboriginal cultures in, in Australia were ge genocidally murdered and the ones who are left have been brutalised both culturally and physically beyond recognition so that Western people that come into contact with them don't suddenly say, hang on, this is a better way of life and I want to see what they're seeing. It's so that they won't actually escape from the illusion that they've been trapped in. A bit off the point of Uskensky, but that shows you the power... But it shows you the power of art. Art is so powerful that our lords and masters have to keep us from it. They have to find ways of having us belittle it, not appreciate it. And then when we see it in action, when we come into contact with it in action, they don't want us to come in, into contact with it in action. And so they make sure that we don't. So, you know, I think it actually just validates what Uspensky says, that art is the, the door to this extra yeah. experience. It's, the, as he says, the beginning of vision. Yep, and they don't want us to have the vision. I think this proves what he's saying is true. But we can if we do it. We can if we do it. Um, I. We're only trapped by our own agreement, aren't we? We're only yeah, trapped by our I, own agreement. By our agreement with the system, yeah. I do want to say now I, that Ispensky ends this chapter now because we've come to this point where he now just puts in a, a huge slab of quote from, I think it's book six or seven, is it seven or six? Uh, book seven of Plato's Republic. And it's about the shadow. It's this famous piece about the shadow in the cave. Uh, and it talks about how a person who is enslaved, i.e. if you were in the cave, I'm just going to paraphrase it. We don't need to go through it. But Plato is explaining this in, in great terms, exactly this. And he said, look, if you put a, a, somebody in a cave that was in chains so tight that all they could see was a ledge in front of them and above them, and they see shadows moving past, that's what they would think was reality. If they were suddenly released from the chains and they could look around and they could see the puppet masters behind the screen and things beyond the ledge, they even if you put them back in chains, they couldn't go back to seeing the shadows as the reality. They would have seen the numinous, the thing that they never even thought existed behind the shadows. 
that represented their reality, they couldn't go back to seeing that as reality anymore. They would know, and you can't unknow what you've experienced. That's, in a very small nutshell, that's what it is. And the um, the other part of that is that if you took that person out from watching the shadows out into the light, mm-hmm. their eyes yep. would, would really hurt and they wouldn't be able to see things until they could. The eyes have to adjust. Yeah, their eyes would have to adjust. And then when they came back into the cave again, the same thing would happen. Their eyes would have to adjust. They wouldn't be able to see the shadows as clearly as everyone else. And everyone would say, you've gone mad. mad. You, you know, don't don't go up there. You, you know, all you'll come back is is a madman. Um, and and you'd look at their uh, – the part I thought was really interesting is that all these games that they play about – guessing which shadow is going to do what next and all these competitions and you're you're the person who understands this whole game and they look at this other person that said i'm not even interested in playing that's just that's just a silly game they'd look at them and say are you mad don't you want to be the the most important person in this place who knows everything about these shadows and they they (laughs) would not understand and no that's right well, let me let me think where 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 I can put that analogy into my personal life. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because that is the fact. Yeah. What's David Ike? David Ike at the moment is the the guy who's in the forefront of it. That they are having to shut down and remove him from every platform of expression. He's the guy that's come back. And it's the only reason they'd be doing that is because he's got something that's actually real to say. <laughs> yeah, that they don't want him to transmit that to the people who are used to looking at shadows. So, yeah, I don't want to read that. I mean, people people should read Plato's Republic and not just for that sh- for that section, but, you know, I, I think you know, people should read it. But um, in a nutshell, it does back up what Ispensky's been saying, that the this idea of art is the gateway to finding the numinous behind the phenomenal is really something that's been as old, you know, it's as old as Plato and probably older than that. People have known about it for that long and it's been a part yeah. of our lives. So I think we should, we can we can end that chapter here and get ready to move on to the next one. I think so. So thanks very much, Pete. No, it's um, been great. It's, I've, I've really enjoyed and uh, we will see you for Chapter 15 yep. next week. Thank you very much. Look forward thanks to you. it. And thanks everyone else for listening.